Chapter 20 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rick Cordray. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 20 Mechanical Motion from Electricity. A Mysterious Machine. How Electricity Makes the Motor Go, An Explanatory Experiment, A Dynamo May Be a Motor, The Source of the Motion, A Lecturer's Amusing Experience, An Early Idea, A Motor Requires a Dynamo, A Great Advantage, Gigantic Power Carried by a Dormant Wire, Present Clumsy Methods, A Coming Revolution. When one goes into an engine room and looks at an engine at work, there is, to many, a peculiar fascination about the machine, though not because of any mystery, for we are all familiar with the expansive power of steam which gives the impelling force to the piston. But when one watches the armature of an electric motor spinning quietly round at a high speed, one does feel a sense of mystery. And it is not surprising to find that the electric motor is a source of wonderment to the majority of people. Of all the subjects connected with electricity, I have found that the outsider seems particularly interested to learn how electricity can drive machinery and make a train or car go. Whether it has been a deputation of artisans from the city with a request for a lecture, or a conversation with an intelligent farmer in a country district, the one question that seems to be uppermost is just, how does electricity make the motor go? If we're content to know how it is done, to the same extent as most people understand how a steam engine works, then there is no difficulty. In explaining the principle of the steam engine, one might point to a kettle of boiling water on the fire, the lid of which was being repeatedly lifted by the expanding steam. To explain the electric motor, I would point to a little magnetic needle being attracted by a magnet brought near to it, and say that that is the way electricity makes the motor go. It is simply a case of magnetic attractions and repulsions. I take the little magnetic needle, pivot it on its stand, and having painted the North Pole red so that it may be easily distinguished, I bring a steel bar magnet near to it. I first of all hold the South Pole of the bar magnet toward the North Pole of the needle, and the needle at once swings round toward it. But when it comes round to the bar magnet, I quickly turn the latter around in my hand, thus pointing its north pole toward the needle. This pole now repels the north pole of the needle, causing it to continue on its circular path. And with a little practice, I soon find I can set the little magnetic needle spinning round on its center. This is just the principle of what happens in a motor. Instead of a little magnet balanced on a pivot, there's a coil of wire mounted on a spindle. And in an early chapter, we saw that a coil of wire, having a current of electricity flowing through it, was in every respect a magnet. In place of the bar magnet, which I held in my hand, there is a large electromagnet, the poles of which surround the coil magnet mounted on its spindle. It will not be convenient to keep changing the poles of this huge magnet as I did with the bar magnet, but if we let this magnet remain constant, and we change the direction of current in the coil magnet at each half revolution instead, the result will be the same. 
It will be remembered that when we pass a current of electricity through a coil in one direction, the one face of coil becomes a north pole and the other a south pole. But when we reverse the current, sending it through the coil in the opposite direction, then the north and south poles change places. It is apparent that this motor, which we have now built up in our imaginations, is simply a dynamo, a large electromagnet with an armature or coil between its poles. But we're going to do just the reverse of what we did with the dynamo. We caused the armature of the dynamo to be driven round at great speed, and we led away a current of electricity from the revolving coil. We had a rapidly changing or alternating current in the coil, but by means of the commutator and brushes we led the current out in one direction into the mains. In the case of the motor, we are now going to lead the same kind of current back to the brushes, taking the current from another dynamo, and as soon as the current enters the armature coil, its poles will be attracted by the poles of the large electromagnet surrounding it, and it has been so placed that this attractive pole will cause it to turn round on its spindle half a revolution. At this point, the armature coil will have its ends in touch with the opposite brushes from which it started, and so the current is reversed in the armature, causing it again to turn a half revolution. It is now back to the position it started from, and so sets off once more, the current reversing at every half revolution. In this way, it soon gathers speed. The quicker it goes, the oftener it will reverse its points of contact with the brushes. So the revolving coil really becomes a magnet, changing its poles at an almost incredible speed. Referring again to the simple explanatory experiment from which we set out, it is just as though I held the bar magnet steady, having a separate bar magnet stationed with its opposite pole at the other side of the magnetic needle. Or it might be simpler to think of a large horseshoe magnet, with its legs spread out to allow the magnetic needle to spin round on its center between the poles. Thus, having a steady magnetic field, or influence, it is necessary that the magnetic needle, when turning into the position to which it is attracted by the magnet, should then reverse its poles and receive a further attraction to make it continue on its journey. Of course, it is impossible to have a permanent magnetic needle changing its poles continually to suit our convenience, but the magnet formed by a simple coil of wire, carrying a current, will behave in this manner. And so electric motors are not only possible, but thoroughly efficient and powerful engines. A boy holding a magnet near to the magnetic needle of a small pocket or pendant compass can make the needle move round. By carefully reversing the position of the poles of his magnet, he may make the magnetic needle spin round. It is the same power which makes the motor go. By applying mechanical motion to a dynamo, in revolving its armature, we get electricity. And by giving the same machine electricity, its armature revolves and we get mechanical motion. In the latter case, we call the dynamo a motor. Of course, in actual practice, there are differences of detail in construction, depending upon whether the machine is to be used as a dynamo or as a motor. When one becomes accustomed to the idea that a coil of wire carrying an electric current is a real magnet, then there is no difficulty in understanding the principle of electric motors. But I trust that the foregoing explanation will not meet with the same fate as did one explanation of this matter given in a lecture I heard recently. The lecturer had been requested by the chairman 
a bailey in the town in which the lecture was being delivered, to explain how electricity made the cars go. The lecturer explained the matter in his own way, and he no doubt was somewhat surprised and amused when the worthy Bailey, in proposing a vote of thanks, said that the lecture had been most interesting, but for the life of him he could not see yet what it was that made the cars go. When speaking of a dynamo and a motor being exactly the converse of each other in action, it is interesting to note that if two electrostatic machines, such as those described in an early chapter, be connected together by wires so that the high-tension charge generated by the one machine when rotated is led to the collectors of the second glass or vulcanite plate machine, the latter will begin to rotate also, its plates being attracted round by the charge on its collectors. The reversibility of dynamo and motor should not really appeal to us as anything strange, for we have the same converse actions in everyday life, as, for instance, when a windmill is driven by the wind, thereby producing mechanical motion, while on the other hand we may apply mechanical motion to a windmill or fan, driving it round and producing a wind, as is demonstrated by a ventilating fan. In the early days of electricity, the distinguished American professor, Joseph Henry, constructed an electric motor on quite a different principle from that which we have been considering. Imagine a pair of beam scales with two iron pans, and at a little distance underneath each, an electromagnet. If an electric current be sent first to one magnet, and then to the other, and so on, alternately, the beam of the scales will be made to rock, or seesaw, just as one sees in an old beam engine. The up-and-down motion of the beam turns a crank, which drives the flywheel round. This early electromotor was arranged to automatically switch the current from one magnet to the other at each stroke, but the principle of the machine entailed a very great waste of power. Of course, the machine was not made in the form of a pair of scales, but the principle was just as described. Whenever we see an electric motor at work, whether in a workshop or factory driving machinery, or on a tramway car propelling it along, we may be quite sure that there is, possibly at some considerable distance, a dynamo being driven round by an engine, and also that there must be a wire or cable carrying the electric current from the dynamo to the motor. Of course, it is possible to drive a motor by means of a powerful storage battery, as is often done, but not economically. One may ask, what is the use of first driving a dynamo by an engine and then making the dynamo drive a motor? It is clear that we cannot get as much power from the motor as we get from the engine itself, for there must be some waste of power in friction, etc., both in the dynamo and the motor. There is certainly nothing to be gained in this direction, but the actual loss in power is surprisingly small. The motor giving about 90 horsepower for every 100 horsepower of the engine. The dynamo and motor are, however, a very great advantage, because they give us a most convenient means of conveying power to a distance. We can have a powerful engine with a dynamo fixed at some convenient place, and from this station we can distribute power to anyone requiring it. We can convey the current to a wire stretched along a roadway or public street, and thus allow the motor underneath a moving tramway car to keep in touch with the distant dynamo. Before the days of electrical transmission of power, 
it was often very difficult to drive machinery in different parts of a works without fitting up various engines in different places. It is interesting to note in some of the older factories how our grandfathers had to arrange long belt drives or long connecting shafts from one building to another to convey power. If some engineer, a generation ahead of his time, had come along and said that he could save them all this trouble, for a fixed and stationary wire could carry the necessary power to any desired distance, I have no doubt our grandfathers would have counted him a knave, or would possibly have advised his friends to take better care of him. Today, there seems to be little to marvel at in this possibility of carrying power along a simple wire, for we have become quite familiar with such facts in everyday life. How convenient to be able to carry power by fixed wires to a ventilating fan on the wall or roof of a building, far away from any source of power. What a savings is made in being able to take a drill or other tool to any part of a ship's hull, or to some out-of-the-way portion of a bridge under construction, using wires to carry the power from the distant generator to the tool. At present, we convey great trainloads of coal from our cold fields across the country to our manufacturing centers. When sometimes sees heavy trainloads of coal passing each other in opposite directions, one lot leaving a town and another lot entering it. Then we have to cart the coal about from one place to another, and all of this carrying means a great expenditure of energy. I think one might safely prophesy that some future generation will marvel that we were content with such clumsy methods. It would be possible to convert all the coal into electrical power at the pithead, and from there distribute it for motive, lighting, or heating purposes to all the surrounding towns. Where no coal fields exist within a hundred-mile radius, the coal could be carried to immense generating stations, supplying a great many towns covering a large area. Already there are indications of things moving in this direction. Sir J. J. Thompson has taken a much longer look ahead in his address to the British Association at Winnipeg in 1909. Referring to the enormous quantity of energy lavished upon this planet by the sun, he pointed out that, according to the measurements of Langley, when the sun was high and the sky clear, the heat energy received was equivalent to 7,000 horsepower per acre. Following this up, Sir J.J. J. Thompson said, Though our engineers have not yet discovered how to utilize this enormous supply of power, they will, I have not the slightest doubt, ultimately succeed in doing so. And when coal is exhausted and our water power inadequate, it may be that this is the source from which we shall derive the energy necessary for the world's work. When that comes about, our centers of industrial activity may perhaps be transferred to the burning deserts of the Sahara and the value of land determined by its suitability for the reception of traps to catch sunbeams. End of chapter 20